We also have new devices that are available to treat people with epilepsy. Some are implanted in the body and some are actually implanted into the brain. There's one from a company called Neuropace where it actually is implanted into the area of the seizure and it can detect the earliest signs of a seizure and send electrical signals to interrupt that seizure. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. I'm your host, Jeff Ostroff. Healthcare on the Horizon is about where things stand now with the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of specific diseases and how things might change with those in the future. We hope you'll find the information here useful in an educational sense, but also perhaps in a more personal way, should you, a family member, or a friend have one of the medical conditions we cover. Please note, the information shared on this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for the advice provided by your physician or any other healthcare professional. Hi, everybody. Did you know that an estimated 50 million people around the world have epilepsy? Did you know that there are some very exciting advances being made, not only to help diagnose and treat epilepsy, but potentially to prevent it? I hope you enjoy learning what my guest expert, Laura Lubbers of Cure Epilepsy, has to say about that and more on this episode. To find out more about Laura and Cure Epilepsy, listen to the episode or check the show notes. And please, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Okay, let's get started. Well, hi, Laura. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here with you. Well, it's wonderful to have you on the show, Laura. And ladies and gentlemen, I just found out recently that Laura and I are actually located fairly close to one another in the southeastern part of Pennsylvania, and it just happens to be a gorgeous spring day today, which puts us in an even better mood. Now, Laura, can you please share with us a little bit about your educational background and your work experience, and then a little bit about when and why you came to cure epilepsy? Sure, Jeff. So I'm actually a neuroscientist by training. I did my PhD at the University of Illinois in Champaign, and I then went on to do postdoctoral work. And then I spent Oh, about 15 years in a large pharmaceutical company supporting the identification and development of many different kinds of therapies, primarily for brain diseases, but also eventually for cancer and respiratory viruses, to name a whole range of diseases I was able wow. to work on. But I came to cure epilepsy just over six years ago because I had a family member impacted by epilepsy and mm. I wanted to make a difference. I've since had another family member diagnosed with epilepsy, so I'm mm. even more determined to find solutions and a better quality of life for people with epilepsy. I can understand that, Laura. When you were working with the former pharmaceutical company, were you working on anything that related to epilepsy? Actually, I was not working on epilepsy. In fact, I had a great disdain for epilepsy. Epilepsy, mm. like many different chronic diseases, creates a lot of stress for families. And I needed to work through that, but eventually came to realize that I could truly make a difference with the training I had both 
in my academic career as well as in my career in the pharmaceutical company. And so I took the leap to go to nonprofit to continue to advance science in a different way. Well, it makes sense. And it's a great thing that you're doing. We may get into this a little bit more later, Laura, but is it common to have people within the same family having epilepsy? That's an interesting and complex question, Jeff. Mm. So in some cases, yes. If there is a genetic predisposition for the epilepsy, it's quite possible to have multiple family members with an epilepsy. In the case of my family, the causes of the epilepsy were actually quite different. For my sister, she had a genetic cause for her epilepsy. And for my mother, she has late onset epilepsy, which we really don't understand very well, but probably has a different cause. And that's a really important part about epilepsy is there's lots of different causes and there's actually a lot of different epilepsies. And we're actually starting to talk about it as epilepsies instead of just epilepsy. It's not just one thing. Yes. And I definitely want to have you talk a little bit more about that, Laura. So let's take it a step further. Have you talk a little bit more about epilepsy? When was it first identified, if you even know that, and about who and how many people it affects? So I'll give you a little bit of background first on what epilepsy is. So it's a neurological disorder where the brain is more susceptible to having what are called recurrent seizures. So seizures are described by some as an electrical storm in the brain where neurons, which are some of the cells in the brain, act abnormally. They start firing erratically instead of in a normal coordinated manner. So someone is diagnosed with epilepsy if they've had two unprovoked seizures or one seizure with a high likelihood of having another. Epilepsy was first described actually in ancient times. It's one of the first neurological disorders that was described. And its first description was found on a tablet that dates back 4,000 years. Wow. At the time, it was associated with spirits and demonic possession, which is why it may continue to carry the stigma that it still has today. But today, we do have a better understanding of the causes of epilepsy as a result of research, which is the focus of my organization. Now, how many people does it affect? And are there certain kinds of people, certain demographics associated with epilepsy? And I know there are a variety of epilepsies, but if you look at it in total. Yes. It's important to know that anybody can be affected by epilepsy. It can be caused by genetic mutations, a stroke, a head injury, a brain tumor, or a brain infection, and perhaps just aging. But epilepsy is estimated to affect almost three and a half million people in the U.S., which is more than 1% of our population. And another way of saying it, one in 26 Americans will develop epilepsy in their lifetime. And even more impactful, there's an estimated 50 million people worldwide with the disorder. And actually, most epilepsy occurs in under-resourced countries. 80% of epilepsy is in under-resourced countries. Wow. I want to go back to what you said earlier, Laura, just to be crystal clear on this. Is it possible for somebody to have epilepsy and not have had a seizure? Is that a precondition? In order to be diagnosed with epilepsy, you would have to have had a seizure. Yes. In order to be diagnosed with epilepsy, you do have to have had at least one seizure. But there are many conditions that can be confused 
as epilepsy or not. And epilepsy is often misdiagnosed. There is actually a disorder called psychogenic non-epileptic seizures or PNES. And this gets confused for epileptic seizures. People will experience very similar symptoms, but the actual diagnostics that are used do not identify the abnormal seizure activity or brain activity in PNES. It can take a bit to diagnose epilepsy. And there probably are other instances, I'm gathering, Laura, where people might have a seizure and it's not PNES and it's not epilepsy, right? There's other possible reasons to have a seizure. It's very true. Sometimes a high fever will cause a seizure, especially in infants. There are different conditions related to, for example, alcohol consumption, which can create a seizure. So not all seizures are epilepsy, but all epilepsy is associated with seizures. Thanks for clarifying. I want to ask you about what would be considered common symptoms, if there are common symptoms that people who have epilepsy will experience, and also about what are the effects of epilepsy. And you might want to throw in there the diagnosis because you talked a little bit about it's not so easy to diagnose. Sure. It's good to talk about the different kinds of seizures. Most people think about seizures, their experience is something that's called a tonic-clonic seizure. They used to be called grand mal seizures. And this is when somebody is convulsing or shaking on the floor, the kind of seizure you might see in a movie. But it's really important to know that there are many different kinds of seizures, and they're associated with different kinds of epilepsy, and they manifest in different ways. For example, a seizure can not be involved with lots of motor symptoms, but actually be expressed as a brief staring spell or a jerking of an arm or lip smacking. People can also have what are called auras, which might be an unusual smell or sensation, but auras are little seizures too. It's important to know that people don't always lose consciousness when they're having a seizure. And there are types of seizures where an individual is awake and conscious, but unable to control all of their functions. For example, they might start talking erratically. And in fact, there are examples of news reporters who have been on air reporting on a story and had a seizure. And it's apparent because they're no longer able to clearly explain their story. Mm. Epilepsy can also be accompanied by other conditions like depression and anxiety. So it's important to recognize that and treat that aspect too. The diagnostic procedure for epilepsy usually relies on what's called an EEG recording, and that's a recording of the electrical activity in the brain. And this, what you'll see is irregular spikes and waves of electrical activity, and that's very diagnostic for epilepsy itself. Now, understanding the cause of the epilepsy is where the field has moved, so it's not uncommon to do a genetic panel or look for certain markers in the blood to indicate whether perhaps the seizures and epilepsy are related to an autoimmune response, which is also becoming more widely recognized. In addition, many clinicians will use an MRI scan to look at the brain that way as well. And if you could talk just a little bit more, Laura, about the effects. You mentioned depression, anxiety. What other effects might somebody have because they have epilepsy? Yeah. Well, there is the depression and anxiety are really important 
components of epilepsy. Certain epilepsy syndromes may also involve other biological systems like the gastrointestinal system. Some of the genes that may cause epilepsy may also cause problems with heart or kidney function. So that's where some of the diagnostics are really important to understand so that the person can be treated holistically and all of the issues that they might be facing as a part of this more comprehensive epilepsy are being addressed. If somebody has epilepsy, realizing, as you've outlined already here, Laura, that there are many different kinds of epilepsy, is there a point person, a certain kind of a specialist that would be called upon to do the diagnosis and or recommend treatments and that sort of thing? That is a great question, Jeff. So there are specialists in epilepsy. These clinicians are called epileptologists. They had training in neurology and then specialized training to help with the diagnosis of epilepsy itself and then the treatment of epilepsy. And the treatments can be quite complex. And so going to a specialist is highly recommended. Often you can get, or people can get good care through their local neurologist. But if the epilepsy is complex, it's best to go to a specialist in the United States, there are actually uh, epilepsy clinics that can be found. They're typically in larger cities. We're looking for ways to expand those expertise to rural locations through different methods, but that is a place to go for specialized help. Okay. Let me go back to something you said earlier, Laura. You said, I believe, that 80% of those with epilepsy don't live in the United States. We are clearly, as a podcast, not U.S.-centric. And so it makes me wonder about a few things. Why is that? Are there certain areas of the world where it's really more prevalent? Is epilepsy growing as a condition? Throwing a bunch of things at you, but they kind of lump under this. And then do they have any specialty centers in other parts of the world, or is it just the United States that has them? Those are all really great questions, Jeff. So it is true that the causes and the treatment of epilepsy really differ quite significantly depending on the region of the world. We were talking about the condition in the U.S. And in this case, often epilepsy is due to genetics or brain injuries or infections. But in less resourced areas and typically the global south, the causes are more skewed to brain injuries from accidents because road conditions are poor mm. or parasitic infections, such as one called neurosister psychosis. And this is actually a preventable cause of epilepsy. It's caused by this parasitic infection that impacts the brain. And the parasite is actually the pork tapeworm and it's present in contaminated food and water and it can get into people and impact their brain. And it's actually the leading cause of epilepsy in the world, and it's preventable with wow. better um, sanitation. Yeah. The ability to diagnose epilepsy also differs across the globe because many of the diagnostic tools used for epilepsy, which we're talking about, rely on the state of the electrical grid, of all things, mm -hmm. things that we don't think about, and technical expertise. So when a country has limited electrical capabilities to run their CT or MRI scans, if they have one, then 
those diagnostic tools are limited. And if people skilled in reading EEGs are not present, then even that routine screen is limited and difficult to deliver. Importantly, access to medications differs dramatically across the world. In under-resourced countries, only 10% of the people are receiving appropriate treatments. And in many cases, epilepsy can be treated with relatively inexpensive medications. It's just that the availability is limited. And these are things that if we came together, we could probably correct. Absolutely. Are the numbers of diagnosed cases growing around the world? I don't know that they're growing substantially. We know 50 million people, and that's been the estimate globally for about a decade. Okay. But the fact that it's not getting better is really concerning since we know what it would take to improve the condition worldwide. I think we are in the developed countries doing a much better job of identifying and diagnosing epilepsy and then treating people, although there's still plenty of room for improvement there. Yeah. And one other thing, Laura, the specialty clinics. I know you've been talking about issues that exist in under-resourced places around the world. If you think more about more developed countries, do they too have these specialty clinics where people can go? Yeah, in the developed countries, we do have specialty clinics where people can go. It can be a real challenge, though, if you're not in a major metropolitan area to access the resources. And so we're trying to identify ways of expanding access to those skill sets through different models. There's one called an ECHO model where skilled experts in major metropolitan centers are able to interact with physicians in more remote locations in the country to share their expertise and help treat the patient population there. So that's an interesting model to think about. We really do need to consider different ways as we recognize the great health disparities, even in our own country. Globally, there are certainly efforts to get specialists in place or even remote access to specialists. I know of one person who does EEG readings from the East Coast of the United States but supporting people in Africa. I love it. And we can now do this because of the connectivity that we have in the world. But that's a drop in the bucket from what we need. Yeah, I was thinking about telemedicine before you said that, and there is some applicability here. Absolutely. I really hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you are, can you please do me a small favor? Let some of your family members, friends, or others in your network know about it and about healthcare on the horizon. If you happen to like this podcast, my interviewing approach, or perhaps even my voice, please consider checking out some of the many services my business provides. These include podcast hosting, creation and consulting, voiceovers, professional interviewing, production of audio or video promotional profiles to help you sell your business, promote your services, increase your customers, or raise funding, and services to help you market to the large and growing seniors population. That's something I've actually written a book about. To learn more about all of this and my other podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, please visit www.jeff-ostroff.com. You can also email me at jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. 
would like to have you drill down here a little bit. You're touching on this, but to have you focus on it, Laura, you've talked a little bit about we're getting better at diagnosing it. And it sounds like even with the specialty clinics, we're getting better at treating it and what we're learning about the genetics of it and all this stuff. What are some of the recent brand new even developments in prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of epilepsy? Interestingly, there are over 40 medications that are already approved to treat seizures. And Mm. the good news is that two of three people with epilepsy are able to control their seizures with medication. But that still leaves about a third of the population with uncontrolled seizures. And this is where the new advances are so critical. So there are new medications that have come out. One is actually based on the cannabis plant. It Mm. is a cannabis extract called Epidiolex. It is recently released in the U.S. and other developed countries. It was actually originated out of England, and it's currently marketed by a company called Jazz Pharmaceuticals. And it's one of the newer treatments. There are some new treatments that are coming along that have fewer side effects, and that's really important because many of the older medications had significant side effects. We also have new devices that are available to treat people with epilepsy. Some are implanted in the body, and some are actually implanted into the brain. There's one from a company called Neuropace, where it actually is implanted into the area of the seizure, and it can detect the earliest signs of a seizure and send electrical signals to interrupt that seizure. It doesn't work for everybody, and it's a pretty scary endeavor to have something implanted in your Mm -hmm. brain, but if it makes a difference in your life and you can now drive and go to work, it's definitely worth it. Absolutely. I should have asked you, is the life expectancy of somebody who has one of the epilepsies, and I know, again, it may vary, can it be roughly the same as it is for most people, or do they tend to live shorter lives? That's a really difficult question. It depends on when the epilepsy occurs, but certainly when epilepsy starts early on and is also accompanied by other challenges for organ systems in the heart or other bodily functions, it certainly can limit people's lifespan. If somebody has developed seizures because they have a brain tumor, clearly there are other things going on and they may have a a more limited lifespan. I think this is a really great opportunity to talk about something called sudden unexpected death in epilepsy or SUDEP, which is something that we really don't talk that much about. People think, well, seizures can impact your ability to function during the day, but they can also kill you. Mm. And that's something that is really hard to talk about. And we really haven't had good numbers until recently, but one in a thousand people will die of their seizure unexpectedly. SUDEP is classified as somebody who's otherwise normally healthy, has seizures, but dies unexpectedly with no evidence of any other cause of death except for their seizures. Wow. And it's really, it's a devastating loss. Often families don't find out about the potential for SUDEP until their loved one has died. And this is where we really need to raise awareness. There's an organization called Partners Against Mortality and Epilepsy, or PAMI, which my organization helped found. And now it is running on its own and we continue to support it. But it's really trying to bring attention to the causes of mortality that are associated with epilepsy. 
Sudep is devastating, but there are other causes of death related to seizures, including driving accidents or falls, drownings that we need to be talking about as a community. Absolutely. I want to come back to one thing here. As we're just thinking about right now, we'll get you looking into the future. What you haven't said, and I'm curious about, and maybe this is in the future, what about prevention? Is there anything right now going on today that's looking at preventing it from happening in the first place? Yes, absolutely. Prevention is a key topic. It's challenging because we don't know who might go on to develop epilepsy, but in some cases, we're getting a better clue. So one epilepsy syndrome is called tuberous sclerosis complex or TSC. And there's an organization called the TSC Alliance that really has been driving research on this topic. And for this type of epilepsy, which is caused by a genetic mutation in something called the mTOR pathway, and I don't want to get too detailed into that, we could diagnose this actually very early and before the seizures start. So now there's a clinical trial running and wrapping up soon, which is identifying children, infants who may develop seizures and putting them on a drug called bigabitrin before the seizures even start. And the hope is that we can prevent those seizures. That's a really exciting possibility. And if it works, then there might be opportunities for other syndromes where we know that there's a mutation. It could lead to seizures and give us some tools on how we go about intervening in advance. There are definitely other interests and efforts to prevent epilepsy. We know that for head injury, a traumatic brain injury may lead to seizures, but it may take weeks, months, or years before those seizures start. So that gives us a window to try to identify who might go on to develop epilepsy and then use treatments to prevent that as well. And that's definitely an area of interest within the research arena right now. Our government agencies like the NIH and specifically National Institutes of Neurological Disorders and Stroke is very interested in advancing this area. That's promising news. I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners anything else that might be promising because here on Healthcare on the Horizon, as you may know, Laura, we like to tap into the knowledge that our experts have, look down the road and ask them what else might be going on out there that would lend itself to hope. Hope either for people who have, in this case, epilepsy, or for others who might potentially get it for whatever reason, genetic or otherwise. What can you talk about as you look down the road and think about this? There are exciting things happening, and I'm glad to be able to share the hope of the research that is moving forward and talk about why it's important to have things like a genetic diagnosis. So one of the areas where there's a lot of research going on is in genetic-based therapies for people who have a genetic form of epilepsy. And now we have research methods to try to develop therapies targeting those specific genetic mutations. That's a really exciting area that is moving forward. I think one of the more challenging populations is the one-third of patients who are not responsive to medications. And how do we help this patient population? 
We've already talked about some of the devices that are coming available. There are new surgical approaches as well. There is actually a clinical trial using stem cells Mm. that are neurons that are being implanted into people's brains and showing some success. That's really exciting. And our ability to understand seizures, I think one of the really intriguing things that we've learned in the last few years is that for many people, their seizures actually have a rhythm. They actually occur at regular intervals. It may be dependent on the person, but they may occur regularly over days or a stretch of weeks or months. And for those who have difficult to control epilepsy, if we can identify or predict when they might be likely to have a seizure, we can institute suggestions around lifestyle changes that may help them stay safe or change their medication routines to help provide extra medication when they might need it the most. So those are some different ways of thinking about how to help people with epilepsy, especially the more difficult forms that aren't responsive to medications. Well, the research sounds very encouraging, Laura. With all this research taking place, we're hearing so much about the link between diet and various health conditions. I had a great guest on, Dr. Robert Lustig, who talked about metabolic syndrome, for example. Is there anything linking diet with either causing epilepsy or worsening it? Actually, diet is a potential treatment for epilepsy. There are many people who do very well on the ketogenic diet or a modified Atkins diet. So it's definitely become an important therapeutic route. It's often considered a second or third line approach and maybe even a first treatment for infants where that is actually, it's very easy to provide the ketogenic diet. One of the challenges as people get old is that it just gets hard to manage it. But diet is a really important consideration in treatment of epilepsy. Wow. It's amazing how important diet can be. Another thing we like to have our experts do on the show, Laura, is maybe provide a tip or two for either those in this case who have epilepsy, trying to manage it, deal with it, or maybe those who are living with them, assisting them in some capacity, oftentimes family, you may be in that situation yourself. Based on your experience, both professionally and personally, what would be one or two tips you might suggest? My most important tip is that everybody should have a seizure action plan. Everybody should know what to do should somebody have a seizure. The family members should know how to approach it. And there are now forms that are available and examples of plans. The Epilepsy Foundation of America is a place to find resources on seizure action plans. I highly recommend everybody consider that. Understanding seizure safety and how to manage who's having a seizure is also very important. And one of the greatest advances recently is that we now have what are called rescue medications that are available that should somebody be having a seizure, like an EpiPen for a seizure, where you carry it and it's available and can be given by anybody to stop a seizure. It's often actually administered up the nose. So they have these devices and you just administer it and it will interfere with the seizure. Those are three things I recommend anybody with epilepsy to consider. Terrific tips. Thank you for sharing them. I think this is a good time to have you let everybody know a little bit more about what Cure Epilepsy does 
how our listeners might be able to help you out, help your organization out. And I think in terms of either using your services, volunteering, donating, if you have events that you run, maybe sponsors would need to know about this. Tell us just a little bit more about Cure Epilepsy. Absolutely. I'm happy to. The Cure Epilepsy is the leading non-governmental agency fully committed to funding research on epilepsy. We were founded 25 years ago. This is our 25th anniversary. Very excited about that. And not surprisingly, we are founded by parents who were very concerned about their children who had seizures. We really drive research across the board. We support research in pediatric epilepsies, acquired epilepsies, so those epilepsies from a head injury, sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, which we talked about. We do this through investigator-initiated grants, and we also do it from very large initiatives that bring together upwards of 100 researchers to be working on a topic over many years. We've awarded more than 280 research grants, and we award grants worldwide. To support all of that, we also do fundraising, and that's where certainly the community can come in and help. We raise funds through events such as marathons, big gatherings, and small gatherings. We have a terrific group of people called Cheer Champions who drive events for us. And collectively, we've raised over $90 million, but it's still a lot of work to be done. But we are grateful for the community that supports us. Of course, people can offer to do an event or they can donate directly at our website at cureepilepsy.org. And we always appreciate people's stories. We have many stories on our webpage. I think one of the things about epilepsy is it can be so isolating and there's a community of people out there and it's good to know about. Great information. I'm glad you gave the website. It will also be in the show notes, everybody. Also, I'm glad you talked about how you use volunteers and you accept donations. And I want people to know about that. I think it's so important to donate to the various causes, both the ones that are on Healthcare on the Horizon and certainly many other ones out there. One other thing before we let you go, your organization, Cure Epilepsy, has a podcast. Can you just say a few words about it? I believe it's called Seizing Life. That is true. Yes. Thank you for mentioning that, Jeff. Yes, we do have our own podcast. It's called Seizing Life, as Jeff just said. It is run by our host, Kelly Cervantes, who is a volunteer. And she sadly lost her daughter to epilepsy as well. And she shares stories about life with epilepsy. She hosts a special guest and they talk about different aspects of life with epilepsy. So I encourage everybody to tune into that as well. Laura, this has been terrific. Lots of exciting developments on the horizon. They had to get that in there with epilepsy and very educational and informative information as well. Thank you so much for being our guest expert on healthcare on the horizon. Thank you, Jeff. It's been great to be here. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. I hope you've enjoyed it and will benefit from it. And if you did like it, please share this episode with anyone you know who you think might also find it of value. And if you have any comments or questions about Healthcare on the Horizon or any suggestions for future topics or guest experts, you can reach me at the website www.jeff-ostroff.com or through my email address, jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. 
www.thinkbigfoot.com. Thanks.